You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Robert Gresses, it's good to see you. Nice to see you too, Dan. Um, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, the larger bloggingheads.tv, meaningoflife.tv audience. This is the Sophia program. I'm your host, Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. The program is available both on streaming video and audio podcasts. I am, again, very pleased to be joined again with Robert Gressis. Robert is a professor of philosophy at Cal State Northridge. Um, and um, we're going to talk today, Robert, about an essay that you published uh, in the Electric Agora not long ago um, uh, called uh, Is Pansexuality Obligatory? Um, and maybe you can um, do a few things to start us off. A, give us a quickie definition of what pansexuality is. B, um, say, you know, briefly what it is you're, what, what question you're asking in this essay, and maybe C, explain briefly why you're asking this question at this particular time. Yeah, okay. So I'll handle... Um see first because this started for a couple reasons um the first reason is that i saw a uh tweet by a philosopher who claimed that um this was a trans philosopher and she claimed that pansexuality is in her opinion the only obligatory or the the only morally permissible sexual orientation and she got a lot of pushback from the comments including some people who said what she said was homophobic and she defended herself by saying that um, people have more control over their sexual preferences than a lot of people think. At least that's how I recall it. And um, apparently she might have later retracted that tweet. I don't know. But um, I, I can update that. So she first first she doubled down pretty hard. Mm hmm. And actually, she did so in a pretty vulgar way. I won't repeat what she actually said. But she basically said that women can get over the. Um, blank okay um, meaning being the male body part although not said in a, in a nice way um but then she has since then recanted the position now okay. i don't know what the position is now what her position is now and we are talking about rachel mckinnon and i will link to a picture of the tweet because the tweets um you can you can see them online even though she's she no longer holds this position I don't know what her position is currently. I am blocked by her on Twitter, so I can't read um, her feed to see what her position is now. Um, but it's worth saying that she's not the only person saying this, um, and I will link to some um, um, others who are saying things like this uh, so that people can see that this is something that's currently in the discourse, um, in the public discourse, on the issue of trans and gender identity and sexuality and stuff. Anyway, go on. Right. Yeah. So... Um I, she might be the only person who says exactly that, so far as I know. But there are people, there are there are positions in the vicinity that are much more popular. The other inspiration for it was I have a friend who's a gay man, and he told me that in where he lives, um, he's been called uh, by bisexual people who identify as bisexual. He's been called close-minded for being gay, and as he tells it, they sort of are acting as though they have a more open-minded sexual preference because they are willing to have sex with both men and women. And so they're more willing to have sex with people for who they are rather than for what they look like. And so I thought now my, my first reaction upon seeing the tweet was, wow, that's uh, 
that's really out there. But then I thought harder about it. And I tried to think, well, why, how would I defend this if I were to endorse it? And I, it turned out that it raised a bunch of issues that I thought, at least to me, were interesting. And so I kind of wrote this essay where I was trying to defend as, as much as I could the position that pansexuality is obligatory and then seeing what was wrong with that position. So that's basically the the motivation for it and how I was thinking about it. Now, um, the way the essay works is like this. So how, what is pansexuality? And I don't recall the exact definition I give in the essay, but the way I was thinking about it was that somebody is pansexual if they conceive of themselves as being open to having sexual relationships with somebody, whether they're male or female or cis or trans. And I so I think that's correct. Yeah. So, so that's sort of how I was imagining that's what, it. That's what differentiates a pansexual from a bisexual, right? Is that the pansexual not only is willing to be with um, males or females, but with trans or cis males or females. That's right. And right. so, um, it's the so most you, multivalent sexuality, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there is somebody I know pretty darn well who identifies as pansexual. So it's not as though I'm completely in the dark here. I won't say who that is, but anyway, I do know somebody who's pansexual. And so, um, so then I thought to myself, okay, so that's what a pansexual is. So why might this be obligatory? And so the main reason I could think of for why it would be obligatory is basically for purposes of acceptance, right? So imagine you have a bisexual who is attracted to males and females, but only if they're sort of gender conforming, male or females, right? He's interested in male-bodied men who identifies men. He's interested in female-bodied women who identifies women, but he's not interested in people who are male-bodied but identifies women or female-bodied who identifies men. And I was just imagining, what if I were sort of transgendered? Like, how would I feel about so many people not being not entertaining the possibility of being intimate with me. And I think that would feel pretty bad. And so I thought, well, one reason that it would be good for trans people, if more people, if all people, let's say, were pansexual, is that it would make them very much, it would feel make them feel very included. At least that's how I would imagine it. At least I imagine if I were trans, I would feel included if, if people never thought of me as somebody who um, was just off limits sexually. Let me let me just stop you there for one second. Um, um, I would want to complicate that a little bit mm-hmm. because certainly in the older days, mm-hmm. the more old school style style transsexuals really want to be thought of as the other sex, mm-hmm. and so I suspect that in their case, they would not want to be thought of in this very poly way. They'd want to be thought of very straightforwardly as women or men. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So good. I think, I think that's right. And I think contemporary trans people, probably many of them feel that way too. So yeah, it's, it's hard for me to, to say this without sort of being imprecise. It's, you know, there's a lot of distinctions for me to keep in mind. I'm trying to respect the way people define themselves. So yeah, like, one way of looking at it is that bisexuality is just the same as pansexuality because a trans woman just is a woman and a trans man just is a man. So a bisexual is somebody who's attracted to both men and women. Therefore, such a person, ipso facto, is attracted to trans men and trans women. But I was just, because of the conceptual possibility of a bisexual who's only attracted to cis 
people. I was sort of like describing it in that other way. But um, the next thought is that, okay, so I think there's a reason for acceptance for, for people, if they can be pansexual, to try to be. But I thought to myself, it's very difficult to call pansexualism an orientation that's obligatory for everyone, such that if you're not pansexual, you are doing something immoral, like worthy of moral condemnation. Because even if it is true that our desires are, our sexual desires are culturally conditioned to a fairly substantial degree, it just beggars belief to think they are totally under our control. Even if we engage in, you know, really aggressive therapy to try to change them, it doesn't seem to work. At least gay conversion therapy, so far as I know, doesn't seem to work. There are, I mentioned in my article, there are gay people who try to have sex uh, in societies where they know that if they're caught, they'll be executed. And so it strikes me that I'm sure they would very much like not to have those orientations if they could change them because of the threat of death, but they can't. And so they have to deal with that. So I thought, okay, it's probably too much to say that everybody, everybody is morally obligated to become pansexual. I call that position uncompromising pansexualism. So I thought, well, maybe there's a more compromising position. And on that compromising position, it's not that everybody is obligated to be pansexual. It's um, some people can't be, but maybe some people can. And a lot of people who can be don't know they can be because they haven't tried. So everybody is sort of obligated to, to some extent, try to do that. And so um, I thought, okay, well, that's more promising as a position that has something to be said in its favor. But there are some worries about this position too. And one of the worries is that, um, well, I, the, the main worry I had with the position was, well, two worries. The first worry was that I thought it was, um, worrisomely socially engineering, right? Trying to get everybody to sort of try as much as they can to change their sexual preferences. That smacked at me as something that is um, just going too far. And well, the other why? prop. Why? Well, the way or, I put or, it. Or, like, do you want to, or do you want to just summarize and then go through the whys? But I mean, I'd be interested to hear if you say a little bit about what you think is problematic or concerning about social engineering beyond a certain point or of a certain type. So you, you can either do that now, or if you want to just summarize everything and then get to the later, you can do that also. But that's something I would want to ask you. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll answer that later because um, I think I didn't get into it too much. All I said in the article was that it's one thing to say, don't be mean to people. It's another thing to say, don't be mean to people. And by the way, not being willing to have sex with them is a way of being mean to them. And I don't think that necessarily follows, right? Um, so, so, but, but that, that's just a little bit of it. There's a bigger reason that I didn't touch, okay. talk about in the essay that I can talk about later. Okay. The other reason is, um, that I think when, <laughs> when you're trying to have a relationship, the, what you're looking for is a home run, right? You're not looking to get a lot of singles. You're not looking to get a lot of like successful three month relationships and then go on to the next one. I mean, some people are but a lot of people are looking for a mate, right? That they can settle down with for the rest of their lives, or at least for a good long time. And so I think um, one of the ways to, I, th- I think that there's a lot of people who they, they shouldn't settle, right? They should try to find a, a, a good person up to a certain point. They shouldn't necessarily try to find a soulmate because that might make them unhappy because maybe they can't get that, but they should try to find somebody they're very comfortable with. They're very happy with. And to sort of try to tell yourself, look, 
I like this person a lot. I'm not sexually attracted to them because of how their body appears to me, but that might hurt their feelings. So I'm going to try to make myself sexually attracted to them. And, you know, I'll try to experiment. I'll try to do what it takes to do that. I think that is a way to lose a lot of time and a way to maybe saddle yourself with a relationship that is less than ideal because your heart's really not in it. And so the thought is that which also can hurt the other person, right? I mean, I mean, that's the other thing about it is that if you're doing something half-hearted and this, and, and you're really making an effort, the other person, you may be setting the other person up for a disappointment, right? I mean, for a really, yeah, I mean, for sure, because yeah, it 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 could, it could go really bad. Um, of course, this happens all the time. A lot of times, people have relationships where they want to like the other person more than they do because they think the other person's great. And so they, they try for years and years and eventually yeah. they yeah. break up and both feelings are hurt quite a bit. I, I know people like that actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so the thought is that when it comes to um, having a very successful relationship, which is something that is good for most people, discrimination is key, right? You are trying to find somebody who's a very close match to you and along a lot of different dimensions. And so trying to make yourself, feel a certain way is sort of bad advice, the kind of thing that can sort of set you up for trouble. I mean, it could, it could open you up to possibilities that you hadn't considered that actually are quite enriching to your life that you never would have had otherwise, but there's a, maybe a greater danger the other way. I think it's hard enough to find a really good mate and that trying to make yourself feel a certain way just makes it harder. So that's basically the, the main argument against compromising pansexualism. So that's sort of the essay in a nutshell. So do you want to get to the part about um, the social engineering? Yeah. So why don't we, um, let me think about, about how I want to get into this. Um, um, yeah. Why don't you just for now, while I'm percolating, why don't, why don't you just for now say a little bit more about what you take to be concerning or objectionable about either social engineering of a certain type or social engineering beyond a certain point. Right. So, um, I, I see, I see basically a reason for it. So imagine that there's a society that has, well, actually, I can even step back a bit further. There's this book called Nudge, okay, by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And it defends a position called libertarian paternalism. And libertarian paternalism is the view that they ha- there, there exists what they call choice architectures, okay? There are ways things are set up that structure our choices and make us choose certain options over others in predictable ways. So the classic example of such a choice architecture is if you have a business and you your employees uh, receive healthcare through your business, then one of the things you can do is you can make the default that they're all enrolled in the healthcare system and they have to opt out, which means taking an active step to opt out, or the default can be they're not enrolled and they have to opt in. And what happens is that if you make them opt in, many of them don't get health insurance when they otherwise would. And if you have that the default being that they're in and they have to opt out, many more of them use health insurance than they otherwise would. So if you think it's important for your employees to have health insurance, you're going to want to set the default to being that they're in and they have to opt out. And they call this, this is paternalistic because in the view of the people who set things up, being on health insurance is better for you than not being. It's generally irrational not to have health insurance, but it's libertarian because at the end of the day, it is up to the person to choose. And Sunstein and Fowler's main point is that society always has a choice architecture. It's just a lot of times we don't realize what it is. 
And that choice architecture pushes people to certain directions or others. So when it comes to social engineering, you might imagine that society has a certain choice architecture when it comes to the sexual preferences people have. And so because of the choice architecture that our society has, people um, don't conceive of themselves as being such that they can, um, uh, what should I say, that, that, that they're not open to having relationships with trans people. They're not open to having relationships with people of the same sex. And a lot of this is due to particular concepts our culture has. So like one idea I thought of, and I didn't mention this in the, in the essay or even mention this to you, is that what would happen if we didn't even have the concept of sexual orientation at all? Right. And that the concept of sexual orientation, from what I know, is a fairly recent invention. It's homosexuality was sort of invented in the 19th century as a sexual orientation. And heterosexuality, at least in the early 20th century, actually meant being somebody who's too desirous of heterosexual sex. And it only it only came to mean what it means now as somebody who prefers people of the opposite sex around the 1930s. But before the 19th century, people, I don't think, thought of themselves as having an orientation. They just had desires, right? And they didn't think, oh, I'm not supposed to. I mean, they might have thought there's some desires I shouldn't act on. But I think one of the things that happens when you have the idea of a gay and a straight sexual orientation is that if, let's say, you have somebody who identifies as straight, who, because of some drunken night, he ends up having sex with a man, he might feel a certain kind of disgust at what he'd done because he might think of himself, that's not me. Mm. Right. That's not who I truly am. And perhaps part of the reason he thinks that way about himself is because he has this concept of a sexual orientation. And then if he didn't have that concept, he wouldn't have reacted to that in the same way. It might be sort of like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that or that was weird. Uh, it was kind of fun, but, you know, it wasn't as fun as having sex with a woman or something. But he might not have that kind of disgust with himself. He might not have that identity crisis that like, oh, no, what am I that he has with an orientation? So. So just try to imagine what it would take to eliminate the concept of sexual orientation, okay? Not that this is the only way to make people open to um, to more inclusive sexual practices, but just think about how much work it would take, right? A lot of people, it's a very natural concept to them now. It's culturally conditioned, but it's a natural concept. So you'd have to, like, make a very concerted effort, right? You'd have to work in the schools. You'd have to work in the government agencies. You'd have to – and there'd be a lot of people who are who know why you're doing this. You're doing this because – you're trying to have people be more inclusive about their sexual practices. But a lot of people have objections to that, right? Some people are like, I don't want to have sex with somebody of the same sex or somebody of the opposite sex. And now you're trying to make my children think that way. Like, I'm going to be against that. And it just seems to me that in order for this to work, there has to be a lot of social tumult in pursuit of this goal. And that's sort of worrisome to me, where in order for it to work, there'd be like, a lot of intrusiveness in people's private lives and how they raise their children and stuff like that. So that's sort of the social engineering objection in a nutshell that, um, that, that like, I think fundamentally what one of the, one of the big conflicts right now between there's something called the cotton ceiling and the cotton ceiling is, and I don't, I haven't really researched this. I just know what it means. So you can tell me more about the empirics of it maybe, but the cotton ceiling as far as I know is this idea that many lesbians feel pressured by um, trans women to have sex with them, even though those trans women have a penis and the lesbians are, for lack of a better word, um, phallophobic, right? They don't want to have sex with somebody who has a penis. And the thing is, is that the lesbians conceive of themselves as women who have sex with women and they don't conceive of trans women as women, whereas the trans women conceive of themselves as women. And when the lesbians say, I don't want to have sex with you because you're not a woman, the trans women are quite offended 
there thinking, but I am a woman. So you are challenging my self-conception. And so they're both challenging each other's self-conception. So it's like very tense, right? Yeah. And that's a, that's a very localized area of conflict. If you made it broader, right, to try to get all heterosexuals to think like that, that might even be more conflictual or more sort of socially disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many interesting things here and um um that I want to talk about and and um and I want to try to keep it somewhat organized um but let me just say a few things in response to what you've just said um first of all with respect to sort of the sexual identities, you know, on the one hand I do kind of see the downside of having developed this notion of sexual identity in the in the ways that you've described on the other hand, you know, if you look at the very specific actual contingent history of these things in our civilization, um, the fact of the matter is that people whose primary desires were same-sex attracted were treated really abominably. Mm-hmm. And so I can see why the idea of a sexual identification not only creates a kind of solidarity amongst people who are very marginalized and mistreated in the society, but then also once we begin to have sort of developing civil rights movements, allows them to join those civil rights struggles in a very clear and uh, 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 obvious sort of way, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 I do think that the kind of idea of a sexual identity, given our contingent history, is very important for gay and lesbian people, and it's something that I would be very, very leery about picking at. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. They've just been treated too badly <laughs> for me to want to monkey around with what has become the central core of their civil rights appeal um, over the last more than a half century. I mean, over the last century, really. Um, and, um, and that's partly why I'm very sort of disturbed by the extent to which the trans activism today, and I'm speaking about specifically about the trans activism. I'm not talking about trans people in general. I'm talking about trans, the trans activism today seems to be very aggressively trying to undermine even the very concept of a homosexual identity, they're trying to redefine it from being homosexuality to being homogenderality. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that's not the basis of gay people's oppression historically, right? The basis of gay people's oppression historically has been their same-sex attraction. And so I'm, I, I'm very, very un- concerned with and leery about this effort, not just to sort of question the whole idea of sexual identity, but to try to to do a, a bait and switch between it and sort of gender, you know, gender attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that's not the that wasn't the problem that Oscar Wilde had, right? The the problem he had wasn't that he wanted a woman who presented as a man. The problem was he wanted somebody with male body parts. That was the problem, right? And I think that it's it's not only disrespectful to that history. It kind of it kind of um, um, it kind of um, no. Let me just say I'll just say that I think it's disrespectful to that history, and it kind of it, it kind of tries to pretend like that the history doesn't exist, right? So so can I can I respond to this? Do you want to go on? Oh no, absolutely. That's why I'm saying it. I, I want to 
you know, I just because you said you had a lot to say, so I didn't know. Yeah, but that's on different things. So this is that thing, and then I'll talk about whatever the next thing is after your. So let me let me draw an analogy um, to to the minimum wage. Okay, bear with me. I'm going somewhere with this. So um, from the scholarship I've seen, the minimum wage was originally a policy used to prevent black people from getting jobs. It was favored by unions because they could set an artificial floor. That doesn't surprise me somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But, um, but although that was its, its origins, right. It doesn't follow that. That's why people who favor it now favor it, of course. And it also doesn't follow that that will be its effects now. Right. Because so much has changed since the debates about the minimum wage originally were held. So the thought would be along this analogy that yes, the category of homosexual or uh, heterosexual, they emerged because of this oppression that a marginalized group of people was facing. But so much has changed since that time. Maybe, maybe not as much as, maybe not as much as I think, but so much has changed since that time that now, um, trying to get rid of that category, trying to redefine it is not going to have oppressive effect like it did in the past. Yeah, but think about this for a minute, Robert. We just literally five minutes ago got gay marriage passed, okay? And again, that's not same-gender marriage. It's same-sex marriage. Nobody was prohibited, mm-hmm. right? No, 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 no man, you know, no, no, no woman was prohibited from marrying a, ma- a man who presented as a, wo- a male who presented as a woman, right? Um females were prevented from marrying females. And, and so the idea that somehow, well, you know, this, 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 this oppression and marginalization of same sex attracted and same sex involved people is way back in history. And now that's an issue, it's not way back in history. It goes up until five minutes ago. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's all rather quick. Look, I won't lie to you. I I really think that this entire movement is really kind of disingenuous. I think everybody knows this. Okay. Um, I really do think that this is a very aggressive effort um, to try and break in on something by either pretending that the history wasn't the way it was or pretending that things, you know, haven't been that way for a hundred. We just fought, you know, I can remember when the only, women in offices were secretaries. I can remember that in my lifetime. Females have only recently acquired Mm -hmm. anything like parity. And it just strikes me as way too fast Mm -hmm. and too quick to say, oh, well, it's gender now. That whole sex Mm -hmm. thing doesn't matter anymore. Now it's gender. I'm sorry, I don't believe that. And I don't believe that the people doing it really believe that. I think that they know very well what the history is and they know very well how recent it is. And so I'm, I'm not really inclined to ascribe very good motives to the activists. I'm not talking again. I'm not talking about the general population. I'm talking about these people who are very aggressively. I mean, come on. The expression cotton ceiling is just flat out creepy. Okay. What does that mean? It's referring to women's panties, okay? It's an ugly word. It's an ugly term, right? What it's saying, women's panties are a barrier to you? Well, damn right they're a barrier, right? Right? I mean, this is this woman, this is this person's sexual privacy, for God's sake, right? And so I I, I, I do want to sort of maybe somewhat strongly react. I mean, I think you are right to be very fair-minded, 
in, in the essay, because you're examining this as a philosopher, but in the political landscape, mm-hmm. I don't think this is very nice what's happening. I mean, that's, so, so my, let me, that's my impression. Go, please. So go let on. me respond. Yes, I think, here's my theory. My theory is that almost every political movement is to some extent disingenuous. Now, there's going to be grades, mm-hmm. right? But I think a lot of times you're going to have people who go on because they want personal power, they want fame, they want exposure. And sometimes, you know, it's those people you need to get the change you want. Now, sometimes it leads to disaster. But I, here's what I think I see happening. The, the movement for gay marriage, I, I don't know when you can date it because, you know, it was on the Libertarian Party platform back in 1971, but it's generally it's dated. It's incredible. To- people don't know that. That's oh. a- that's actually quite incredible. I think it's incredible that some that an actual party was pushing for that that early. I find really yeah. mar- remarkable. There, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, there's yeah. a funny story about that, but I won't tell it here. Um, so, but most people date it to like Andrew Sullivan's work on it. <laughs> right. I think he had a big essay in it in the New Republic in 1991 or 1989, for right. which he was. He was roundly condemned by uh, many gay activists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virtually normal. Yeah, he wrote. Yeah, and he he wrote that book because he had AIDS and he thought he was going to die very soon. So he wanted to get the book finished as soon as possible, which he said on a podcast uh, called "The Fifth Column" with um, some some people I like. But anyway, um, from 1991, let's say to when, when did Obergefell pass? 2012. Yes. I believe okay, so. Okay, so, 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 but from 1991 to 2012, that's 21 years, right? We go from gay marriage being anathema, even among gay people. Or at least some segment. The, the gay, the gay community was. Yeah, split, fair enough. Was split Gay on activists, this. if you yes. want to say, or some gay activists. Yes, yes. Um, well, I know Sullivan talked about the lesbian Avengers protesting him and stuff like that, but, um, from 1991, where it was widely considered a non-serious idea, to being the law of the land to now being something that the Republican party wants to have nothing to do with opposing. Right. Like it's, it is, it is a battle. People who oppose gay marriage, it is a thorough route. Yeah. It's in terms of, that, that's a yeah, battle. Yes. If, 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 if a lot of things shocking would have to happen for it to be reversed at this point. Yeah. And that happened to, at least to me, that seems incredibly quick. Right. For that quick of a social change in attitudes and mores to happen. And and then there's the other thing that's happened, which is what Matthew Iglesias has called the Great Awakening. Right. Where starting around 2013, all of a sudden discourse around white privilege, white supremacy, you know, the drill has become thoroughly widespread. And that started like 2012, 2013. And now it is ubiquitous seven years later. And I think the lesson people are drawing is twofold. One change can happen extraordinarily quickly nowadays Two, um, very aggressive tactics work tactics yeah. to try to delegitimize your opponents tactics yeah. to try to deplatform them. Yeah. And yeah. as long as they work, you got to keep using them. Yeah. And so I think the reason that people, even if it is disingenuous, um, the reason there's a huge incentive to use them because they work. Yeah. 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 No, you're right about that. I just, um, <laughs> Let me now go on at this in a different tack, and this will get us, I think, into a number of areas that um, that that are that are interesting and important, and maybe even connect this to other issues outside of the issue of sexual orientation. Um, I actually personally have a very have a pretty serious problem with the very idea of subjecting other people's uh, sexual orientations and preferences to moral scrutiny. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I have no problem with subjecting people's sexual behavior to moral scrutiny, obviously. Um, right. Sexual assault, um, uh, sex, sex with people who cannot consent, um, whether they're handicapped or whether they're underage or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's all sorts of sexual behaviors that certainly I would subject to moral scrutiny. But the idea of subjecting people's sexual, in a sense, sexual consciousness to moral scrutiny strikes me as objectionable for, for two reasons. Um, the first is that it does strike me as to some degree violating the odd implies can dictum, right? Um, and, and, and so I'm hoping that we're going to talk about the extent to which sexual orientation is malleable and the extent to which it's not, right? Um, yeah. Because you and I had a private conversation along those lines that I thought was really interesting. Um, so for one reason is I do think that there is some violation of the odd implies can dictum. Um, the other reason is because I am a very committed liberal. And to my mind, um, the borderline of where anyone is, anyone permissibly intrudes upon another is their consciousness, right? Um, this is Orwell. This is, you know, everything that's part of the classic liberal tradition as it's developed uh, over the last century, especially in contrast to totalitarianism, which of course seeks to intrude upon and invade the consciousness of the individual to me. And so, well, on the one hand, I do appreciate that we want to be concerned about bigotry, right? Or potential bigotry. I think that the violation of a person's consciousness is worse than, 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 than bigotry. In other words, in a liberal society, that is the ultimate wrong you can do to somebody. People are allowed to be bigoted. They're not allowed to behave in a bigoted way, but they're allowed to be bigoted. And especially in terms of their sexual preferences. And so I'm just curious what you think. In other words, I don't even think that this is an appropriate subject for moral discussion. Mm-hmm. What, is your, what is your thoughts along these lines on either of those vectors, the odd implies can or the, the liberalism sort of vectors? So, yeah, regarding the odd implies can, I don't think, I think anybody, everybody knows that you can't just push a button and change your sexual desires. Now, to what extent can you reform them? So here's, here, I was talking with a friend about this and here's a, a way of thinking about it. It's one thing to say, um, I'm not attracted to trans people or I'm not attracted to gay men or whatever. That can mean two things. It can mean so far it hasn't happened and I don't expect it to either. Right. Another one is I'm going to rule that out. Those are two different attitudes you take to it. Now I think on your view, both of them are permissible because they're just attitudes, right? And they're attitudes that regulate your behavior. But one of them sort of says, this is not a subject for kind of any kind of, uh, cognitive reform, right? Whereas the other one says it could be. So one of the diff- big differences between you and me is you come from a Jewish tradition and I come from a Catholic tradition. And, you know, there's a famous passage in the Bible, which no doubt sends shivers up and down your spine, where he who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has thereby sinned, right? Well, that's in less your death. Bible. It's not in my Bible. We don't, oh, view, sorry. The we don't view the New Testament as canonical. <laughs> that's us, right. Us that has as much authority as the Book of Mormon has to you. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but in the New Testament, right? Yes. And that's something that, yes. and so a lot of Christians, not just Christians, Buddhists, right? They don't believe in the New Testament, but they, they engage in a bunch of mental exercises, yeah. right? To try to 
to cleanse them of the thoughts of self. Christians engage in a lot of exercises to try to, you know, um, uh, make themselves right. You know, Augustine said, Lord, make me chaste, just not yet famously. Right. But, um, but you know, it's the same sort of principle that like, there's, there's ways I react to things that I want to change. I don't want to like torture myself because they might not be fully in my control, but they might be more in my control than I think. So do I think it's a subject of moral censure? I'm uncomfortable calling it morally obligatory, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to rule it out. And I'm also, you know, it does seem to me like there can be a kind of closed mindedness, which is a way of thinking that can be a vice and that it might be susceptible to like virtue vice talk, even if it's not susceptible to obligatory, not obligatory talk. Could we talk about malleability for a minute before, before sure. we get to this part of it? Because you and I did discuss this privately, and I thought that we, we some really interesting things came up that I just want the audience to, to, to share in. Um, I do think that sexual orientation is, or let's just call it sexual consciousness, okay, mm-hmm. is malleable. Personally, I am of the view that sexual attraction is highly particular in the sense that I do actually believe that in principle – anyone could be sexually attracted to some particular individual of either sex, right? I, I do mm-hmm. actually believe that. Um, um, it may be one in 10 million. <laughs> right. But I really do think that sexual attraction is highly particularized in that way. Um, 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 look, taste is malleable. There's things I didn't like. I'm talking about taste in food. There's things I didn't like when I was a kid that I like now. And to a certain extent, it may even be trainable, right? So there's things I didn't like as a kid that by repeated exposure to them, I came to like. Mm -hmm. But what I said to you was the way in which it's malleable and whether or not repeated exposures and training work is very haphazard and unpredictable, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You really don't know whether it's going to, right? And so I don't know how to, in terms of the odd implies can, I guess I want to say it it, it, it violates a, 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 a modified version of it, right? It assumes that the assigning of moral scrutiny assumes a kind of control under one's deliberative reason, right? Mm-hmm. That it's certainly not amenable to, right? In other words, it can be changed, it can even be trained, but it cannot be trained by conscious, deliberate ratiocination, right? It can be trained in a sort of a haphazard hit or miss, you know, spray a bunch of things at the wall, see what sticks. And that seems to me wrong to, to apply. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, you know, and I, I'm, I'm trying to get the sense of the sort of the, the, the somewhat randomness of it. Um, yeah. And I just don't know if I think it really makes a lot of sense or is appropriate to apply moral scrutiny to things like that. What do you think? Yeah. Hey, do you think I'm right in the way I characterize it? And B, what do you think about this idea of applying moral scrutiny to something like that? I mean, my, my hunch is that you're right. I, I also think we probably just don't know. We might never know because it might be very highly particular. We might have to have like a full genetic mapping of every single person. And, you know, but even then, I don't know if we're going to know. But, but yeah, let's say, so here's the analogy I have. Uh, it's not a good analogy because it's super philosophical. But it goes like this. So Kant believed that we have an obligation to bring about the highest good, the highest good being a state of affairs where everybody is perfectly happy, sorry, perfectly virtuous and happy 
in proportion to their virtue. And since they're all perfectly virtuous, they're all perfectly happy. And concept, that's what we should strive for, basically utopia. And then the response is, well, we don't really have any reason to think that's possible. And Kant said, well, if you believe in God, then you know it's possible. And then people are going to be like, yeah, but maybe there isn't a God, right? So let's say you say there isn't a God, or even if there is a God, God's not going to bring that about. What happens to your moral motivation to bring about as good a state of affairs as you can? Well, you want to try as hard as you can to bring about as good a state of affairs as you can, but you don't know how good it can be, right? It's completely opaque to you. And because it's opaque, you might not try as hard as you otherwise would because you'd say, well, I don't have to try that hard because this is about as good as it's going to get or can't get much better than this, what it is right now. It's just so vague that it's a way of sapping moral motivation. And so let me bring us back now to the sexual question. Yes. I think, I think everybody is, is very, um, idiosyncratic, but I think it's also possible that there is somebody out there for them who is not cis or who is not uh, opposite sex or whatever, who they could be attracted to, let's say if they're a straight man. And um, the problem is you don't know who that is. And so trying to sort of force people, and you also don't know how, how common it is either, right? It could be one in 10 million. So, so trying to force, trying to encourage people to spend tons and tons of work trying to bring about this change in themselves it might really fail a cost benefit analysis for many, many people. Because if you're expending like tons of effort to change your sexual attitude and it's the only payoff is going to be, yeah, now that one in 10 million, you're going to be very open to it. It's like, wow, what a waste of time. And since, since nobody knows where they fall, nobody knows like how many people they could or couldn't be attracted to who they aren't already attracted to. There's going to be like this huge disconnect between how much time people are pressured to spend changing their sexual desires and how far they can actually change it. Some people might have like great success in changing their sexual desires a lot. Other people might have no success. And because some people can show they can do it, other people might blame the ones who don't do it, when in fact, the ones who didn't do it, they couldn't. And maybe some of the ones who did do it could have done it a lot more. And it's just so hard to tell. And, and, And moral sanction is such a blunt instrument that like people could feel really bad about themselves who shouldn't, and people could feel really good about themselves who shouldn't if this became the social norm, right? That you should really try to expand your horizons. Philosophically speaking though, let me, I mean, and you are a Kant scholar. So, I mean, this is something I'm just going to ask you directly. Philosophically speaking, Mm -hmm. is it appropriate to apply moral scrutiny to something that is not a matter of one's rational will? Um, I, I would have thought for Kant, absolutely not. Yeah. So, so Kant, um, he thought there were certain kinds of non-moral features of our mental lives that hinder or help our ability to carry out our moral tasks. And you got to remember for him, he thinks there's an infinitely long afterlife. And so you are supposed to work on making yourself gradually more and more resistant to the force of your desires. So you reach an, a level he calls autocracy where you have full control yeah. over your desires in the sense that you can't control whether or not they happen, but you can control how tempting you find them. So you get to the point where they're not really tempting. They're just these weird obstacles. To give you an example, sometimes when I'm driving in, in traffic, I have this faint urge to like swerve into oncoming traffic, but it's not a, <laughs> I, I'm weird, but here, let, let me make, let me make a better example. Some people, people are there, looking over. Have you seen Annie Hall? 
Oh, a long time ago, yeah. Don't you remember the thing with Christopher Walken and her brother, and they're driving in the car? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. I just had this vision. I'm going to have to link to that in the, in the car. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. Sorry, yeah. you just had, I had this total flash from Annie Hall. Yeah, this like, is, but this, that's really true of me. I really do have that desire. By contrast, the more common version is you're, you're looking over a ledge, and you feel this urge to jump, right? Yeah. But it's an urge. It's not a desire. It's like something that passes through you. You give it no authority at all. So somebody who had puritocracy, that's how like all their desires they disapprove of would be to them. Just these urges, they give them no weight at all. They're not actually tempted by them. And so Kant thinks that's the end goal. Right. But he also thinks it might take an infinite amount of time to reach, right? So Kant, I don't think would say that you, um, I mean, he thinks you have transcendental freedom, so it gets really complicated. So to some extent, yes, yeah. But leaving that aside, I think for practical purposes, he thinks they should be the object of moral reform but not moral sanction, except insofar as you could have reformed them more than you did, but that's, um, but you didn't. And he also says, and a lot of people don't know this, he said, you should be harsh with yourself, but gentle with others. Mm. And I think that's because he thinks you have a lot more, well, he thinks your goal is to have self-knowledge. He says you have to descend into the yeah. hell of self-knowledge, yeah. but um, you can do better with yourself than you can with others. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But he, yeah. Yeah, no, and listen, I think, we look, we don't have to be Kantians. I guess what I was just trying to get at was this idea that, look, I, even though it is not the case that sexual consciousness is entirely out of one's control, mm-hmm. it seems to me that in an ordinary frame of reference, we normally don't assign a lot of moral scrutiny to things that are not under the, the, the jurisdiction of people's deliberative reason, right? Um, that, are, that are not subject to their, you know, and that's because we, we, we sort of accept an informal version of odd implies can, right? I mean, we sort of impl- accept this idea that, look, you know, there's certain things that, you know, we decide, and those are the things that we can kind of, that we should be subjected to scrutiny for. And then there's other things that we really don't decide, even if there are things that can be changed, right? But that doesn't, you know, if they're not things that we actually, that our conscious will is able to sort of move, mm-hmm. there's something a little odd about morally blaming somebody for it, right? Again, we're not talking about actions. We're just talking about, and again, I'm leaving aside, you know, the issues about Christianity and all of that. I do understand that. Um, 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 it's not an intuition I share, but it's something I understand. Um, let me now ask you on the other side of this, though, um, because this is maybe even more interesting. Um, so I'm contending that while, about while bigotry is something about which we should be concerned, obviously, and which we should endeavor to, um, to, to avoid and to prevent, that in a liberal society, the intrusion upon a person's consciousness is actually worse. Mm-hmm. And bigotry, uh, and, and 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 is actually, in my view, is is the essence of the totalitarian impulse, um, right. which is why I'm not only opposed to moralizing about people's sexual preferences in terms of sexual orientation. I'm not really interested in pursuing people's, you know, sexual. Int- I only like redheads, or I only like, you know, uh, I only like, you know. Uh, I have a friend who only likes, you know, who only dates Asian women. Um, and even um, 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 other sorts of, you know, what they're calling implicit bias, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about, the, about, that, about that 
allegation of mine that that actually the intrusion upon people's consciousness in a liberal society is actually a worse crime, morally speaking, than the bigotry it's seeking to stamp out. Uh, I have very mixed feelings about that. Um, here's so here's especially the given the history of the 20th century and given the history of totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Isn't this something about which we should be extraordinarily careful and concerned? So I think I think we should separate it into like three levels: the political level, the social level, and then maybe the moral level, the individual moral level. So politically speaking, I think it is worrisome, right? When you say, I mean, deeply worrisome. If, if for instance, there were hate speech laws, right, that that criminalize a certain kind, a certain content of speech, that's that's worrisome. Because, you know, you worry about who's going to get control of that and they're going to use it as a wedge to get more and more what they want. Or hate thought laws. Right. And here's the thing about hate thought laws, right? So here's the, here's the motivation behind them. Which is where the implicit bias stuff all points, right? This is about really essentially stamping out hate thought, not hate speech, but hate thought, right? Well, yeah. Here's, here's a potted history of, I think, how we got to implicit biases. So step one, there was like government-sponsored segregation, right? We get rid of that. Then we have explicit and open um, expressions of racist uh, beliefs and uh, people discriminating against people. Bigoted okay, behavior, we, naked bigoted behavior, yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So so we make actual bigoted behavior illegal, right? You're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. And we also strongly socially sanction bigoted expressions, right? At least in the, in the public, Right. We don't put cameras in people's houses and monitor. Well, actually, the Hulk Hogan case is sort of different. And you've heard about this. They're trying to develop technology to use like Alexa like devices in offices and stuff to sort of find out who's implicitly biased in in their office. Right. I mean, this is well, implicitly well level shit that we're talking about. Right. I mean, just as you described it, it sounds terrifying. But I will say I just want to make this distinction. Implicit bias is quite different from explicit articulation of racist beliefs, yes. right? Which is, which is still, which, which we do police and which is appropriate in certain contexts. Right. Police overt behavior, including speech. I mean, we don't allow all speech in every environment, right? I mean, then that's... Yeah, we socially sanction it at the very least. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. But, but then, you know, after all that work, racial disparities did not vanish. And so people became, began to wonder, why not? And so I think the thought of implicit biases seemed like a really good candidate explanation because you haven't gotten rid of the racial uh, racism. You've just driven it deeper. And so it's still manifesting as actions, even though it's no longer manifesting as speech or as very as actions that are even visible to the people who do it themselves. Right. And now I do think there is a connection between belief and action, which is why I think so many people want to sanction a person's interior beliefs or not just between beliefs and actions, but also between reactions and actions between preferences and actions. But it's also re- like implicit biases do not seem to me to be a very reliable way of judging whether somebody is bigoted. Right. They and act, the evidence shows that they do not actually accurately map onto actual behavior at all. So the whole thing well, yeah, it's, is rather ideological and less, less about actual remedying problems than about, trying to purify environments of, of people with wrong thing. But let's let's pretend that that wasn't the case. Yeah. I would still find it objectionable on liberal grounds. Yeah. That, you know, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to live with a little bit of, of that because – 
the remedy for it is worse than than the thing you're trying to fix, right? And that's yeah, a, and I, I also violation think of people's conscience, their privacy, their psychic privacy, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I don't want to I don't want to understate that point. I do think I do think the approach is worse than the problem, and I also think the approach is counterproductive because I I I think I I don't think the alt right came from nowhere. And I do think it is somewhat reactionary, maybe maybe largely reactionary to a lot of very vigorous attempts to police people's behaviors or speeches, especially when the speech was clearly not intentionally racist. The intention sort of drops out as um, a ma- measure of moral importance. And then it's like, well, the effects are what matter. But geez, you have really very little control over the effects a lot of times. Yeah. And, you know, this is actually my problem with consequentialism, like trying to maximize consequences. I just feel like that's a, a mugs game. Like we, if you, there's so, there's so, so often not nearly as much in our control as we think. So yeah, I think it, it going down that path, I think is really worrisome. I see what motivates it because, you know, beliefs often eventuate in action, but at the same time, you know, people have only so much control over their beliefs. People have only so much control over their, their reactions, their preferences, and I don't see very much understanding of that from the people who are trying to, who, from the people who get mad at each other for their non-intentional harms, if they even are, are harms. Sometimes there might not be harms, but might be microaggressions, which are sort of sub-harms. But did, um, did you want to, did you want to distinct, did you, did you want to separate the ethical from the political? In other words, did you want to say that ethically speaking, bigotry is worse than the violation of people's psychic privacy? Was that something you wanted to say? Because I, I, it seemed that I, way. I, I said I'm on the fence. Like, I have to think more about it. To me, liberalism is not just political. It's an ethos. No, I agree with you. And, you know, one of the points that Mill makes is that the harm principle is not only supposed to apply to laws, but also to social sanction, right? And I think, I mean, I find myself finding that an admirable goal. I just don't know if it's coherent in the sense that it's it's something that people can do. Like, we really, really want to police each other. And trying to convince each other that live and let live, it doesn't seem to be a winner. Like, even if you can get them to believe it as a law, which is a big step, trying to let them, I mean, we just love judging each other. We love demonizing each other. There's no greater pleasure than demonizing somebody and feeling great about it, right? Like, especially it's so on Twitter. Easy. <laughs> but, yeah. It's so easy to demonize. Yeah. And especially when you think that the act of demonization is itself morally imperative, then it's just like win win. Right. I, I get the pleasure of attacking somebody I hate and being being praised for it. And so. Um, so, yeah. So so I will say, though, that um, we have sort of gotten a bit far from the the, the trans um, the trans the trans lesbian conflict. Well, right? I, I don't know, because this is look, what's the main concern? The main concern is that by having a sexual preference or orientation and refusing to sleep with whatever other sex or gender, one is being bigoted, right? I mean, that is the concern, right? I mean, that, that is, that's the moral issue. Otherwise there's no moral issue at all. Right. And so I do think that this is, this is the point, right? Um, 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 and that yeah, is, I wouldn't put it quite like that though. I, okay. I wouldn't put it quite. Why not? Or yeah. why, what, what's wrong? Yeah, so you, you said, um, the refusal to sleep with somebody is bigoted. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm misquoting you, but something like that. I think it's like I the said, lack that conf- of desire for someone according to a sexual preference or an orientation is, is, is bigoted. Um, um, 
I mean, that's sort of the pansexual. I thought that that's what the pansexual pansexuality is obligatory was supposed to be about, right? Was that it's obligatory because any other orientation is bigoted because it's exclusionary. Um, uh, so yeah, so, so transgender people aren't necessarily pansexual, like the conflict between transgender. Uh, no, no, not necessarily at all. I'm just saying the pansexuality is obligatory claim. Yeah. Is on the grounds that, other sexual orientations are bigoted. That's, that's, that's what, that's, Oh what, yes. That's yes, what the yeah. whole point was, right? Yeah. Other sexual orientations are exclusive. Because they're and, exclusionary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But it's uh, like not being willing to date a black person or something, or it's like not, right. I guess what I'm saying is that even if it is bigoted, people are entitled to that consciousness, right? I mean, people are entitled to, and, and to not have it be, intruded upon right that 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 the intrusion upon that consciousness is worse Mm -hmm. that's what i'm suggesting um then yeah even if it is now i'm not saying i think it is for the other reasons that we talked about it's kind of involuntary i don't know that i really think it's subject to moral scrutiny at all but even if it is bigoted it seems to me that the liberal ethos would would mean okay you need to stay out of people's minds right yeah, so what, I, I guess I want to know more about what it means to stay out of this person's mind. So let's say that you've got somebody who, who never acts racist, right? He never, like, fires somebody because they're black. He never says mean things to them. But in his personal life, he doesn't like black people. He, like, maybe maybe he associates them with the Democrats, and he doesn't like Democrats. And so he, like, um, which I think is how a lot of conservatives think. I think it's more anti-Democrat than anti-black, but I could be wrong. But in any case, um, let's say he's like this, right? He, he wouldn't want his daughter to date a black person. And so I think we could call this, like, here's the question. Is calling that person bigoted, intruding in his mind? Is telling him you shouldn't think like that? Is that intruding in his mind? No. So what's intruding in his mind? I, I, my, right. So that's a fair, that's a fair question. And in this sense, I sort of go with Aldous Huxley, right? So, so uh, there's actually, I'm going to link to this too. There's a really fascinating um, series of interviews that Mike Wallace did with Al- Aldous Huxley. Okay. And um, um, back in the fifties and um, um, or maybe it was the early sixties. Um, but anyway, um, and um, here's where I draw the line. You violate someone's, Conscious, you violate someone's right to their to the privacy of their consciousness when you attempt to affect their consciousness by by bypassing their conscious rationality, right? In a sense, either through manipulation or or uh, or or duress mm-hmm. or other forms of non. In other words, there's nothing wrong with trying to persuade someone of something. Mm-hmm. But when you vi- when you try to when you try to change their attitudes by bypassing their conscious rationality and their will, you are engaged in a fundamentally manipulative encounter that, to my mind, violates what I've been calling the liberal ethos. Mm-hmm. And I would say you could give a very straightforward Kantian account of the way in which that 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 violates their autonomy and treats them as a means rather than as an end, right? Um, you're violating their personhood in a very fundamental way, and I think that that's worse than them yeah. being bigoted, than them being bigoted, having bigoted, yeah. not bigoted behavior, bigoted. Attitude. Yeah. 
So, so let me, let, let me, let, yeah. yeah, let me, let me delve deeper into that because I think it is Kantian. Here's one reason it's Kantian. The right people, what they do has moral worth only if they do it from duty rather than say from fear. Right. Right. If I say you better not be racist because if you will be, there will be consequences. Right. And then, and then if they're not, okay, they're not racist, but that's like on a, on a razor's edge. Right. The only reason they're not is because of this contingent thing and not, and you should try to deal with them. Yeah. try to persuade them of it because that's treating them as an end themselves. But here's the thing. <laughs> Just like we were saying, some people couldn't help their bigotry. Some people can't help but get mad at their bigotry. Right. So some people can't help, but deal with these people with anger and like they're raising their voice They're They might, they don't have to give a threat, right. That's in your control, but like saying, I don't want to ever see you again. Right. Shunning them, that yeah. kind of stuff that, I mean, shunning is within your control, but it's like, I just hate this person. Every time I see him, he drives me crazy. Why should I be around him? Right. And so that seems to me like it has an effect, right? It might make this person feel pressured into not being racist, but it's also not, that wasn't why it was done either. It wasn't done just to pressure him. It was not a performance. It was just how they felt. And so it's like one of these problems where both people have these reactions they can't control. And then when they meet, it's like, even if one changes, it's not necessarily a good thing. Um, and I don't know. So, so it seems like intentional manipulation is the real way of getting into somebody's uh, bypassing their rationality. Right. And this gets back to the libertarian paternalism, right? Yeah. Does that count as intentional manipulation? Yeah. Like fidget, fidgeting with the choice architecture. And like, here's the issue for me. Like, imagine you have, imagine you have kids going to school. And the school has a very politically progressive set of administrators and teachers who keep on trying to convince the kids of beliefs that are very much at odds with their parents, right? Not just that racism is wrong, but that things that their parents don't think of as racist are racist, right? Or trying to teach the kids that um, they should be open to every sexual orientation, right? Or that they should be pansexual, right? Like... That really, that, that really completely unacceptable, right? I mean, that's 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 worse than what you're trying to prevent, right? I mean, that that's. But they, but what if they do it by trying to reason with the kid? I guess you can't reason with a kid. Kids you form not, the kids. They don't have rational autonomy. I mean, that, that that's the, sort of the problem. Um, and look, we don't have to agree on this. I just want to. I want to sort of. I just wanted to sort of lay out all the different dimensions of it. And there is, we're running long, so there's one more element of it, though. I do want to run by you because we did mm-hmm. talk about this in private, also, and I think it's important. I do think that also this issue, not not. I'm taking the pansexuality as a proxy for this issue of morally policing people's sexual prerogative, right? There's, there's sort of, there's sort of internal sexual consciousness and then sort of the, the, the lives that they choose on the basis of it. Um, I'm against it for basic liberal principles, but I do also think that in this specific frame of reference, where we're, where we're specifically in the, in the, in the trans activist versus feminist discourse that's going on, this is mostly happening between trans activist women and lesbians. All right. Okay. And in other words, you do, you never hear, you really don't hear in the public discourse now, um, trans men badgering gay men to sleep with them. Right. Or, tell, no, but you- or telling gay men that they're immoral for not wanting to sleep with them. This is mostly 
trans activist women saying this to lesbians. Right. That's the way it's playing out in the discourse now. Okay. I want to ask about that in a second, but go on. Um, well, no, ask about it because, because I'm going to get to something that, that I'm going to want you to talk about. So, you okay. Ask so, about. so tell me more about this badgering. So I, I haven't, I've heard about this term, the cotton ceiling, but I don't know how it's supposed to go down. Like when, when you say that um, trans women are pressuring lesbians to sleep with them, are they basically saying, I want to sleep with you. The fact that you don't want to sleep with me shows that you're bigoted or is it the, yeah. So from what I'm understanding, from And the only reason I know this is because I've kind of waded into these battles, started off defending a colleague and, f- and friend of mine who I've known for almost 20 years, Kathleen Stock, and, and other lesbian and non-lesbian feminists in Britain who are trying to protect female prerogatives that are in law, things mm-hmm. like single-sex changing rooms, things like single-sex prisons, things like all that sort of thing. So I've waded into all of that. That's the only reason I know anything about this. But what I'm gathering and from what I'm seeing, this is happening in a number of ways. You've got trans women that are now going into lesbian dating sites and lesbian dating apps. Mm-hmm lesbian dating environments. I'm, ha- I'm hearing lesbians telling me that there are almost no lesbian bars anymore where you can go and really be in an entirely female environment. Right. Okay. Um, you have it in terms of les- in terms of um, um, third and fourth wave feminist um, uh, websites and uh, like everyday feminism. There's a pretty, a pretty well watched YouTube, um, a trans activist YouTuber named Riley Dennis, who made two very heavily watched videos that says that are titled your sexual preferences are discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And so there's just this pressure being brought to bear through all these different frames of reference on lesbians to tell, telling them you are bigoted because you don't want to sleep, have rela- intimate relationships with male bodied people who identify as women. Mm-hmm. Now, aside from my objections to this sort of thing on the sort of liberal grounds and more abstract terms that we talked about, that I don't think we should morally police these things, that I think it violates basic principles of the liberal ethos, I also have an objection to this in the much more contextually specific element in that I really think that given the history, given female-bodied people's history with sexual violence, we should not be doing anything that involves telling female-bodied people that they should override or overcome or get over their sexual boundaries. Mm -hmm. I, I hate the word rapey, but there is something vaguely that bothers me about this in that regard. Um, I really think that female-bodied people should not have their sexual boundaries challenged, given the very specific reality that female-bodied people still live under and that historically they've lived under. And I don't know if you th- if you have any specific feelings about that. If you don't, you don't have no, to. No, I do. I, I do. Comment about that. But I, I feel pretty strongly about that as well. I, I have a daughter. Mm-hmm. I have a wife. You know, this, there's a very personal dimension to this for me. Right. Um, um, 
And so I'm wondering if you think that there's anything to that dimension of it also that. So, so, so it, I think, I think it's like, <laughs> it's very, it's very tricky in this way. So I think if you are um, a trans woman or you, you will think of yourself, I think in the vast majority of cases as a woman, right? And so if you are a woman and you are attracted to women, it do, it makes sense that you would think of yourself as a lesbian too. So you would like join a lesbian dating site. Now here's the thing. Obviously, you know, I shouldn't say obviously, but I suspect you know that a lot of lesbians don't think of you as a woman. And so are going to say, I'm not attracted to you. I'm not attracted to male bodied people. And so it's this, I can see why it would be very upsetting if you do think of yourself as a woman and you're constantly told that you're not like, imagine if you joined a dating site you think of yourself as a man and everybody thought, no, you're not. And it's like, but I am. Oh, I like, agree with you. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I think that given our actual specific history, yeah, males should give females the latitude in this regard. Except even, of course, if fem- even if they're women identifying, you're still male. Right. You're still male. You're still biologically male. I think. That's right. Yeah. And you don't, you're not of the sex that has the history that the female sex has. Yeah. I mean, so, so like, this is weird for me. You're not being generally mutilated in Africa. You're not being subjected to rape in non-developed countries, coercive and corrective rape. You're not, you know, there's an entire sexed mention to this that I just think, I I, I think you're absolutely right. I'm sure it's upsetting. I'm sure it's disturbing, but I, I feel like, the the male bodied population owes the female bodied population this latitude, right? So, like, I don't know if you don't agree with that, or you don't have to agree with it, but that's no, no, no. I, that's my <laughs> feeling about it. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm very old fashioned, right? So, one of the things, like being Catholic, that I think about is chastity, right? And so, you know, I I, I tend to think of chastity <laughs> almost as a chivalrous virtue on the part of men, right? That um, I tend to I agree. Think, I think that when there's a lot of when, when people are encouraged to be very sexually open and to be very sexually experimental, my hunch is that this is actually better for men than for women, that men get more out of this than women do in general. I could be wrong, though. I mean, it might be a myth. It, it's just a hunch. And I haven't done an empirical research on it. But like if it is correct, then you could see the sexual revolution as something that benefits men really greatly more than it does women, at least when it comes to actually having sex. But that said, that's an old conservative talking point. So I'll drop that for now. Um, I, I think, right. Like the, the special duty that, that men owe to women. And if you don't think of yourself as a male, man, body, you, male bodied people owe to female bodied people that we really, that female bodied people have been through something historically and still, Right that means we should not be pressuring them on their boundaries. Yeah. So, okay. Two things. Um, the first thing is that obviously, as you know, trans people, especially trans women are subject to some pretty horrific violence themselves. Right. Uh, men, that, that also should be completely, oh, of course, completely it's, it's a, not accepted. Right. I'm right. The, but those are, those are mutually consistent, right? Yeah, they are. It's just that, uh, and of course, the people perpetrating the violence on trans women are not female body females, <laughs> right? They're men. They're 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 male body people, right, right. right? I mean, men are responsible for most of the violence in the world, like Period. probably ninety five percent. Right. So, like, you know, it sort of reminds me of. 
I mean, and this is just words, a loose trans analogy. women shouldn't have their boundaries violated, and but females shouldn't have their boundaries violated. And 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 I feel like pressuring people, and especially mm-hmm. lesbians who are particularly sort of beleaguered. Uh-huh. I just it, the whole thing makes me really uncomfortable when I hear about it and when I see it happening. Mm-hmm. The, the McKinnon stuff really made me feel icky. I mean, I just sort of, I just was like, gosh, you know. I, I, you know, I think you, you said you've made a point repeatedly throughout this, which is that you're talking about trans activists. Yeah, trans yeah. But, but and the average ordinary trans person isn't doing this stuff. They're not the ones having these conversations. And no, and, no, no. I, uh, you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this. And berating people, and yeah, of course. So, of course. so the thought is, I, I would bet that a lot of trans people, a lot of trans women who do genuinely think of themselves as women, also get that a lot of lesbians don't think of them as women. That's and right. it's probably painful, but I don't, I doubt that many are going to pressure lesbians. Well, you should have sex anyway. They might, they might be hurt and they might express their hurt by saying, I really think you should be more open-minded and I really think you should think about this more deeply. But I don't know how often it's going to be a case of pressuring. <clears throat> and I agree with you. Yeah. And so I wonder like how much of this is, um, how much of this is just like, I don't know what to word. I don't want to think of a bubble. It's in the media. It's in the media environment. Look, if we didn't have this ubiquitous communications, this wouldn't be this. This wouldn't be a problem. I don't think. The problem is that when you com- combine that kind of aggressive activism with ubiquitous communications, I think that les- females and especially lesbians f- are feeling bombarded right now with this, yeah. and it's because of the media saturation, right? Um, I have a kind of orthogonal issue, but it's somewhat similar, which is not about the trans women relating to lesbians. It's about um, trans children and cis children, because like, you know, there are at my son's school, uh, his preschool, there was a trans child. And my son didn't really ask about this child, so I didn't have to think about what to say. I I don't know how to explain it to a four or five year old. So I was I didn't. I was hoping he didn't ask and he didn't ask. So I, I didn't have to think of it, but like, this is something parents have to think about. Right. And I suspect that schools are going to tell the children, look, this, this person who looks like a boy is really a girl. And they're going to tell the children that. And so the parents, some of them are going to disagree with that. They're going to say, well, that's not quite right. Like, and, and so I don't know how this gets negotiated because the schools have to think of something, right? They can't just let the playground figure it out. Yeah. Right. And so which, and, and, and of course, if you tell the little, the, 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 the boy bodied child who thinks she's a girl, that she's not a girl, that can cause a lot of problems too. I have no idea what to do about that, but it strikes me as a similar kind of negotiation between how parents want to raise their children to think about these issues, how schools need to figure out how to think about these issues. And I just, just don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, Needless to say, it is a thorny, tangled, very hard situation. Um, um, But um, anyway, I I do think that we, we, we vetted this in as, in as thorough and I hope humane a way as possible. Um, And um, so Robert, I want to thank you very much. Um, I invite everybody to read the essay. I think um, Robert is incredibly patient and fair minded in the essay. I can't imagine anybody would object to the way he presents the material. Um, and um, um, we'll link to a whole bunch of the other stuff that we've talked about. And um, uh, thank you very much. 
Thank you very much, Dan. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. And I look forward to the next one. Uh, uh, now, that, now that we've become regulars with one another, I look forward to the next one. Yeah, we have a few in the pipeline. All right, Robert. All right. See you, Dan. Take care. Bye.